0: Welcome to the May 24th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. On this week's podcast, I have two very special guests from Duke University, and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. But they just published a paper using a new technology to possibly provide a biological marker of even earlier indications of autism. So I'm gonna go ahead and let them introduce themselves
1: in electrical and computer engineering
0: so we'll get a little bit to why computer and electrical engineering were needed for this for this project Um, so dr dawson so tell us a little bit about the project especially why you would be measuring eye gaze why is eye gaze so important in 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 toddlers especially with asd
2: Yeah. So, well, before I get into that question, I do want to highlight something that you just said, which is the importance of bringing together different disciplines to tackle this um, really complicated problem. Um, And it's been really just a wonderful collaboration between the psychologists and psychiatrists at the Duke Center for Autism and the group in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at at Duke. And I want to particularly highlight someone who couldn't be on the the podcast today, which is Professor Guillermo Sapiro, who is a um, world-renowned engineer in the area of computer vision analysis, uh, which is something that we use to measure eye gaze. And George will be explaining that to you later because he's going to be much better at that than I. But so what, why did we measure eye gaze? Um, so it's been known really for quite a long time that um, people through, with autism throughout their lifespan pay attention to the world in a different way. And um, what we know in young babies is that somewhere between six to 12 months of age um, that babies who go on to develop autism start paying attention to the world differently than a typical baby would. So we know that typical babies are naturally drawn to faces and to facial expressions, to voices, to gestures. Um, This isn't something that you teach a baby to do. Our brains are just wired to want to pay attention to social information in the world. And actually, by paying attention to the social world, this is how we learn about the social world. So in babies who are going to go on to be diagnosed with autism, They um, are paying attention to the world by focusing mostly on the non social world, so the objects in the world. um, They may pay attention to even unusual visual patterns, but not necessarily paying attention to people's faces and voices. So uh, people have traditionally used eye tracking technology to measure these gaze patterns um, in infants, but as well as children with autism and even adults with autism. Um, And the Tobii eye tracker is a typical tool that would be used for this. It's pretty expensive. So um, up to, you know, $25,000 and also requires techniques such as calibration in order for it to work properly. And so what we wanted to do was to develop a tool that would allow us to measure eye gaze in young children um, and also to do that in a, at a real world setting. In this case, it's a, a pediatric exam room. Um, and to use this as a way of detecting which babies would be then diagnosed with autism.
0: Aren't there general screening tools that pediatricians are supposed to be using to do this.
2: Right, so typically the way autism is screened today is with a simple 20 question uh, survey that is given to parents. And ideally this is given at their 18 and 24 month well child checkup. And we're actually very um, happy when pediatricians do this and we encourage pediatricians to use That questionnaire, uh, the most common one is the modified checklist for autism and toddlers or the MCHAT. And um, at Duke, actually all kids are screened uh, with the MCHAT at 18 and 24 months and and kids in our study were too. Um, The challenge is that the MCHAT, even though it is a good screening tool, it doesn't uh, perform as accurately as we would like. It, It misses some kids it also uh, sometimes will over-identify kids. So for example, in a very large study that was published in 2014, 30,000 families, they found that of the children who failed the MCHAT, these are 18 to 24 month toddlers, um, only about 50% of those uh, children went on to be diagnosed with autism. So what this means is that there's a lot of families who are on what we know are long wait lists to see a a professional who can diagnose autism and um, needlessly worrying about autism uh, when in fact um, their child may not have autism. So what we wanted to do is to develop a tool that would provide us with direct observation of the child's behavior and not necessarily um, rely only on parent report Another important, um, I think, uh, motivation for developing this kind of tool is that the MCHAT does not perform as well with families of color uh, or families who have less educational background. And of course, it does require literacy um, and the, you know, it, uh, issues related to language can, it can be a barrier in many case, cases. So the idea is, can we, develop a, a scalable tool that could allow us to directly observe the child's behavior that could be easily administered, um, either in parents' homes or in a, a clinic setting um, that could detect early symptoms of autism, gaze being uh, one of those really important features.
0: According to the paper, these were done in clinic, office, in clinic offices. So that, that, that answers one question. To my understanding, you tell me actually, so how did this all work? So parents came in for their normal 18 to 24 month checkup and then what happened?
2: Yeah, so um, we've done it two ways. One is actually in the exam room um, where uh, kids were just sitting on their parents' lap and they um, we had a little stand that would allow either an iPad eye- pad or an iPhone to be mounted on this little stand um, about two feet away from the child. And you basically started the app and the app was a series of, of movies. Um, these were short, engaging movies. Uh, each was less than a minute, and then the entire thing took less than 10 minutes. And um, the children just simply watched the movies while they were sitting on a parents' lap. So it was very easy to administer. Um, And then another study, we actually did this at home where parents um, downloaded this off of the uh, app store. And then again, just sat their child in their lap and let them watch these movies on an iPhone or an
0: iPad. So George, can you tell me a little bit about the movies themselves? Like what was in these movies and what were you looking for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So these movies are not just um, any movie, these movies are um, created by um, experts as Jerry herself, where we designed the stimuli, the movie stimuli to have um, a social and a non-social component um, on the left and right side of the screen. So for an example we had was the blowing bubble stimuli where we had a person on the left side of the screen and he's uh, blowing bubbles to the right side of the screen. So we have a very clear separation of um, the social and non-social part um, taking up different sides of the screen, which we could then um, use to measure the child's gaze. Are they looking more towards the person or are they looking more towards the non-social bubbles on the opposite side of the screen? So, uh, so we have a few stimuli like this. Um, of course, we um, balanced it so we wouldn't always have uh, the social on the left side. We sometimes have the socials on the right side. And we also had a stimuli where we had two people um, talking. And we wanted to see if the child could um, follow uh, the, the interaction between the two, um, the two person talking, so would they shift their gaze to the person who was talking and uh, back and forth basically.
0: So just to be clear, I just wanna make sure all of the listeners know when you look at eye gaze, what is that? So do do the kids have to wear a cap? Do they have to be restrained in any way? What is the protocol for um, eye gaze assessment?
1: Yeah, so that's kind of the the biggest thing about um, uh, this, the methodology is we don't require um, any external hardware, specialized hardware such as the Toby um, eye tracker. All we're using is the camera that's on the iPhone or iPad themselves. Um, so it's very accessible to, um, to everyone. Um, yeah, so we're using computer vision algorithms Um, to detect the child's gaze just from the video that's recorded from uh, the mobile device.
0: So what did you find? What did you find in terms of kids? So you did kids that were later diagnosed with autism and then those that weren't later diagnosed with autism. Um, So what did you, did you find anything? Were there any History would tell us there should be differences. So what did you see any differences?
1: Yeah, so we um, we found um, very significant contrast between how much attention uh, the children with autism uh, watched on the side of the screen where the social component is compared to um, the typically developing kids, um, what we saw was the typically developing kids would pay more attention to um, the social component, um, which is uh, matches with the literature. Um, but the uh, kids that were later on diagnosed with autism, they paid um, relatively a lot less attention and to to the to the social component, but paid more attention to the non-social component, the component.
0: So I'm gonna um, insert, you can hear the audio of, a, of, of the actual video right here. So you can actually hear people talking and then you can kind of hear in the background what's going on.
1: Let's blow some bubbles. Again?
0: And can you kind of explain, um, George, what is going on? There's talking for the the social component and then what are the things that are going on in the non-social side?
1: So the person on the left is first talking and engaging with um, the, the, the viewer, the child. And then he would blow the bubbles and the, the bubbles would appear on the right side of the screen. And uh, we would typically expect uh, the toddler to shift their attention to the right at this point. Uh, and then the person on the left would um, speak again and engage with the viewer. And this is when we expect uh, the toddler to shift their attention back. But um, what we noticed was throughout the entire course of the video, um, the children that were later on diagnosed with autism, they paid more attention on the right side of the screen where the bubbles are um, compared um, with the typically developing kids who paid more attention to the person that's on the left side of the screen.
2: And, and just one of the things that we um, thought about as we designed these movies is um, how, how do we usually elicit these patterns of attention when we're conducting a diagnostic evaluation of a child with autism? So as you may know, the, we use the autism diagnostic observation schedule when we bring a child into the clinic uh, to provide a diagnostic assessment. And actually the ADOS involves a set of play activities very similar to the ones that we showed on, the, on these little video clips. So for example, um, both in the blow, uh, blowing bubbles, as well as this um, of a woman who was... Uh, blowing a pinwheel Um, they repeat that activity a few times with with eye contact and very engaging with the the viewer the baby in this case that's watching the video but then at some moment they pause and stop and um, even feign as if the bubble blower or the pinwheel is not working and then um, A typical child, when you do that, will look at the person, like, what's going on? Why aren't you continuing? And that is an actual probe that we do in the ADOS. And what we're looking for when we do that probe is whether the child will look to the person when they stop and and pretend like it's not working. And so we designed the video to parallel what you would do in an ADOS. And and in fact, um, in the paper, we published that if you pick out those very specific moments when those pauses occurred, you can um, even have greater accuracy in distinguishing between the kids with autism and the toddlers without autism. Because at that moment, the um, the typically developing toddlers were just zoning in on the person, and you know why aren't you continuing? Uh, whereas we did not see that uh, for the the. Uh, the toddlers that were diagnosed with autism. So that, that actually worked. I was, uh, we hoped that it would and it, and it definitely distinguished between the, the two groups of kids.
0: And this was about a 10 minute video you said?
2: So there's a series of videos um, that we show um, that all together last less than 10 minutes. Okay. Um, and we, for this paper, um, analyzed three of those videos. Um, and I think another point I want to make here is that we believe ultimately that gaze will not be the only important biomarker um, to distinguish between um, kids with autism and, you know, kids without autism. Um, so we've designed the, the app to be able to elicit multiple kinds of behaviors. So gaze is a critical one and also I think from a technological point of view was um, just an amazing accomplishment to be able to measure gaze without any external equipment. Um, but we also can measure facial expressions, uh, body posture, uh, we, we measure uh, the child's orienting to name and we have someone call the name uh, while they're watching the movies and really a wide range of biomarkers that we can um, derive from this app. So there's a series of about nine to 10 mo- short movies and, um, and then we integrate those biomarkers um, in a overall algorithm that would then be used for early detection of autism.
0: So, so what did you find? So you, you, George just explained that there was a clear difference um, between those who were later diagnosed with autism and those weren't. But I also want to point out that it wasn't like the kids, at least from the data that I saw, only looked at the bubbles, right? Or they only looked at the pinwheel. There was kind of like a, a, a normal distribution. So they just looked more often at the, at the non-social scenes. So how did you derive did you derive a cutoff or do you this was just observational of kids that didn't didn't develop autism.
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a great point to to clarify here is this is not a, um, a, cl- a clear separation It wouldn't we wouldn't get 100% you know classification that if you only look on the right you're Um, you know, you have autism, and if you only look on the left, you're typically developing, it's a, it's a, like you said, it's a, it's a normal distribution, and there is overlap, and in this paper that we published, um, what we showed was there clearly are two distributions, there is overlap, but um, there are significant differences between the two distributions, Um, so we haven't um, uh, trained, uh, for classification purposes in the paper. What we showed is, um, the difference between the two is significant, and we can give kind of a probability estimate of, if you have such a behavior, what is the likelihood of, um, this toddler being diagnosed with autism in the future. It wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't say it with 100% certainty, but maybe with 50 or
2: 60%. Yeah, I think another um, sort of important point here that George alluded to in, um, is the idea that um, by combining multiple features, then you can provide more accuracy. And we demonstrate that in the paper. So for example, if you combined just the percent of time that you look at the social versus non-social. And you combine that with the percent of time you look at the social during those key moments that I talked about earlier, such as when the um, actor pauses. And then you also combine that with the correlation between your gaze pattern and and the speech um, conversation, which was another movie. So if you take just those three features, we were able to discriminate with about 90% accuracy uh, between the children who went on to be diagnosed with autism versus typical development. So we're hoping then to add additional features such as facial expression and others to even increase that accuracy. And with the goal of having an accurate screening tool, we're not uh, proposing that this is a diagnostic tool at this time.
0: So you kind of answered my last question, which was, what's next? So this is clearly some powerful data that shows the clear importance of obtaining potentially both you know, parent report, eight, the MCHAT is more of like a conversation between the parent about what they're noticing, and some real observational tools that maybe day-to-day clinicians may not be able to kind of capture, I want to remind our listeners that day to day pediatricians are not just doing the M chat at these well child visits, they are trying to make sure your kids are vaccinated they're dealing with ear infections, they're dealing with um, sometimes I would go to the pediatrician and some kid had broken their arm, you know, so they're dealing with a lot of things and so they shouldn't be expected to do to become, you know, as precise as as, as, as a trained developmental pediatrician. So. What is next for this? Um, but what do you envision this going on to do next?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So um, we, one of the points that you just made was the idea that we this might be used in combination with something like the MCHAT. So if you think about the MCHAT, that's asking parents about what their child does at home. This is a direct observation, and perhaps in combination, this would give a more accurate screening. Uh, But we're very interested in the possibility that this tool could help us to um, be able to detect babies that will go on to develop autism, um, even before they we can provide a diagnosis. So we received a um, grant from the NIH to test this in babies as young as six months of age because we know from other work that has used eye tracking technology with, for example, infants who are at risk for autism because they have an older sibling, that we know that those um, babies who go on to develop autism are showing atypical gaze patterns. So we're back out in primary care clinics or actually in this study, we're allowing parents to download the app at home. And that was motivated partly from the pandemic to be able to do this completely remotely at home. And then um, we're following babies from six months of age up through 18 to 24 months of age um, to see whether those kids who then develop uh, autism, whether we can see very early patterns of differences in their behavior. Um, We're also incorporating this tool into all of our clinical trials at Duke uh, because we believe that this may uh, be a more objective tool for measuring change in a clinical trial. That's something that we'll see whether that works or not. But as you may know, this is one of the big challenges in the field is to have better tools that are sensitive to change that are objective, um, that provide quantitative um, measures of, of change. So we're we're hopeful that this can also be used um, as an outcome measure. And then finally, we're, we have um, a number of studies ongoing with uh, preschool and school-age kids uh, with an app that's appropriate for that age and we're looking more carefully at whether the biomarkers that we see are distinguishing among not only autism but um, many conditions that usually are comorbid with autism, so kids with ADHD, children with intellectual disability, um, and kids who have perhaps both autism and ADHD. How do, how do, this, how do these um, biomarkers look in kids that um, have more than just autism or kids with other neurodevelopmental disorders?
0: Are you recruiting for this at-home study? I know the one in the pediatrician's office. You're probably concentrating in the um, Duke area. But for the ones that parents can download at home, is that something you're recruiting for? nationwide or you're still trying to keep it within the immediate area?
2: Yeah, all all of the the kids in the uh, infant study are Duke uh, pediatric patients. So um, one of the interesting things we're doing in that study is combining the data that we get from this app with their electronic health record data. So we're also very interested in below one year of age of just how your patterns of healthcare utilization may also add information about risk, later risk for autism. And we've published um, a paper suggesting that even before one year of age that babies who go on to develop autism have very different um, patterns of the kinds of visits they're um, coming for. And so we're hopeful that kind of using all information to just come up with a better way of early detection of autism. Because um, as you well know, early intervention is so important. Um, And fortunately we have some great strategies now that we can teach parents to use even during the infant period to promote social and language development. And so we want to have ways of just getting that started right away so that kids can have the best outcome better uh, that they can.
0: What can families do to, to encourage their pediatricians to incorporate something like this into their um, their pediatricians' offices? Right. So, yeah, well, we we don't think this is quite ready to be encouraging everyone okay. to incorporate this
2: into their pediatric clinic. We hope to be there in a few years, though. Um, I I think this has been a very encouraging study, and and fortunately. Um, the Duke primary care providers are, are great partners in this work, so they have been at our side every um, point in this journey in helping to design this tool and they're co-authors on our papers. Uh, so I think we're in 11 uh, Duke primary care clinics now. So I think after we, this study is completed, we, we might be at the point where we're gonna ask those parents to help us to get okay. it into, outside of Duke. Okay,
0: okay, yeah. Okay, George, is there anything that you wanted to add, something that I missed in the questions? Is there anything else you wanted to add?
1: Uh, not really. I think um, I think Jerry already mentioned this, but I guess I can just reiterate that um, this is, um, that the gaze work is really kind of one tip of the iceberg that of the, the bigger project here, because um, we mentioned we have about 10 to 11 Videos during the entire app administration. That takes about 10 minutes. And right now we're only using three of the videos for gaze analysis. So, and we're already achieving very good results when we combine the different features across um, the three um, stimuli videos. Um, But we're really hoping to leverage all of the videos we put in there because they were designed for a specific reason. We're gonna, um, we're looking at uh, like Jerry mentioned, body posture, response to names. So all of these features um, and they might come from different videos depending on um, the content of those videos. So we're hoping to really incorporate all of these different features across all of these different movies
0: Dr. Dawson, do you ever see a time when there won't be the need for some of these autism questionnaires like the MCHAT or some of the screeners?
2: Well, I'm a scientist, so I always (laughs) say it's an empirical question, right? Of whether we need to uh, combine the parent report data with the observational data. If I had to make a prediction, I'd say parent report data is always gonna be important. Um, They always have an important voice and you know they see their kids in a lot of different contexts that you may not see at the moment when you're doing you know a a direct observation. However, I feel very confident that we will see a day when a lot of this is done at home, Uh, so you can also administer a survey uh, over the uh, an iPhone. And I think the idea is that we just wanna get these tools into the hands of people who need them. You know, There are many places in the world where they don't have a pediatrician to go see or um, a professional for diagnosis. So I think the extent to which we can develop these scalable exportable tools um, will hopefully be able to reduce some of the disparities in access to early detection and early treatment.
0: Well, thank you both for being on this podcast and um, thank you both for your amazing work in this area.
2: Well, it was my pleasure and uh, it's been uh, just a wonderful journey to be collaborating uh, with George and the rest of the computer science team at Duke. So thank you for having us.
1: Yes, thank you. It was it was amazing to, to really work with um as an engineer myself, it was amazing to really work with um, the clinical folks on the team.
0: This was clearly a collaborative project between clinicians and clinicians at Duke, but then also the pediatricians. And I know they were listed in the, the manuscript, but computer scientists and engineers. And so um, I obviously I think in a lot of different fields, that's what's really needed. So um, this is a great example of that.
2: And don't forget, the families, right? Yes. So they're our key partners. uh, Yeah, absolutely. All those collaborators are what makes the work possible.